It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Past, Present, Future. Today, I'm talking to the politician and podcaster Rory Stewart about his experiences of politics, but also about his political philosophy. What is it that makes him not a conservative, not a Whig, but a Tory? Past, Present, Future is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, and you can subscribe for a special rate by just going to lrb.me slash ppf. Subscribe at lrb.me slash ppf. Rory, you write in the book, when you were thinking about becoming an MP, one of the questions for you was which party? Uh, And it wasn't an obvious answer to that question. And you describe someone saying to you, someone who was trying at the same time to become an MP, I think, I'm guessing Tristram Hunt, but I may be wrong. Yeah, it was Tristram Hunt, who said to you, essentially, the issue for you is that you're a Tory, not a Conservative. And you say on some issues, you were closer to Labour but you were very suspicious of their technocratic ambitions and their indifference to local traditions and what life was like on the ground, particularly in foreign policy. What did it mean to you when when you were told by a historian that you were a Tory and not a Conservative? And did that give you pause? (laughs) Because you weren't joining the Tory party, you were joining the Conservative party. I probably should have done. I mean, I, I came in with a loss of naivety, but I think for almost anyone coming into politics in midlife rather than starting as a student, there's going to be an element of naivety. The gap between how parliament actually works and what from the outside one thinks about parliament is always going to be really extreme. I mean, I found with most of my colleagues that they were astonished, even if they'd been involved in the party arriving, to discover they had quite so little freedom in relation to votes, that the whips operated in the way they did, etc., or that prime ministers promoted in the way they did. On the Tory-Conservative split, I suppose I thought there was a kind of deeper, older tradition of prudence, restraint, scepticism, And of course, the modern Conservative Party in many ways in figures like Liz Truss doesn't really uh, represent that. I mean, she represents almost the the opposite on those things. I mean, she, you know, famously was a kind of Lib Dem. She was a Republican. She's a sort of radical free market innovator. She has no time at all for small farmers or tradition or landscape or anything I care about. But on the other hand, I can't really see myself joining the Labour Party. I mean, I, I do a podcast with Alistair Campbell and I'm very conscious doing it, how very differently we see the world. That he, you know, he instinctively sees the world through the lens of class. He is very riled up by the monarchy, by private schools. He's instinctively pro-nationalist in Ireland, finds it sometimes, you know, he's sometimes a bit embarrassed that I'm quite so passionately unionist in relation to Scotland. I think it's a, it's a different tradition. And and the things that you've just described could be characterized as Tory. I mean, you know, in some ways, this is a dated distinction. But 
what you talked about there, prudence. And and you say in the book, one of the things that put you off Labour was you, you admire David Miliband, but your experience of Labour of the Blair Brown years projected overseas was a kind of obliviousness to to detail and to what actually happens when these schemes are played out on the ground. But on the other hand, you say on some questions, I'll give you the list, immigration, criminal justice, the civil service, and probably poverty, you thought you were closer to Labour. And actually, poverty is the interesting one there. Do you still feel that? So when you, never mind Alistair Campbell, but when you hear Labour politicians talking about poverty, they assume that the solutions are big state solutions. They assume that it requires government schemes, projects, the things that Tories are suspicious of. And yet we're talking 29, 2010 here. Back then, you thought relative to the Conservative Party, what Labour had to say about poverty was closer to what you thought. How do you square that circle? Uh, well, I, I, it's a lot, lot of different questions. I mean, on the last one, I think, I suppose I meant that I'm more likely to see poverty as a great scandal than many of my colleagues are, and particularly extreme poverty and issues like prisoners, the poor elderly, homeless. I mean, th- these are the things that get me most motivated and excited in politics. They're the places where I feel most clearly an emotional charge, a desire to get involved. I feel, my goodness, I couldn't imagine inviting someone to my country and showing them this. This is really shameful. And so I resonate, you know, when somebody like Tessa Jal, the Labour politician, said to me that the question she asks herself when she goes into a hospital is, would I put my mother in this place? So that way of thinking about the world, I I really do relate to. And I don't share the one side of the modern Conservative Party, which is, you know, George Osborne, I remember giving a little talk to us as MPs, which I I describe in in, uh, Politics on the Edge, where he's saying, you know, how upset he gets on a housing estate by seeing that while some people are going off to work early, other people still have their curtains drawn at 11 in the morning. And and this one he wants to crack down on and kind of idle people who are sweating the system. Th- that's not something that offends me or upsets me or motivates me. I'm not, I don't feel cutting down on benefits cheats is, is something that is important to me as part of a political philosophy. You joined Osborne's and Cameron's party. And this was, you weren't to know when you joined, it was going to be then the government of the coalition. But it was also the Conservative Party whose philosophy, such as it was, was the big society. And you suggest that that actually did draw you in some ways. And and that, to contrast with New Labour, had some elements that you found attractive. I think now when people think back on big society, the thought is it was a kind of empty promise. It didn't amount to much. When you look back on it now, do you think it could have amounted more to more? Did it amount to more than people give it credit for? Because it feels a bit like a scam, to be honest, with hindsight. No, no, I think it really has something important in it. I mean, it's difficult to do, but I think there's a really important insight. So to connect back to your previous question on this one, what I saw in Iraq and Afghanistan of the way that the Labour government approached the world, which was the kind of, I don't know how you describe it, high modernist, high Davos, liberal global order worldview, is that it was actually deranged. You know, I this idea that, you know, Afghanistan was going to become, and I'm, I'm quoting now from documents in 2002, a gender-sensitive, multi-ethnic, centralized state based on democracy, human rights, and rule of law, is, is, is you know, patently, obviously now in 2024, mad. 
right? We, we can see how daft this stuff is. And yet it was very, very, very common. I mean, it was being generated everywhere, generated for South Sudan, for Afghanistan, for Iraq. And I, I sensed it again, talking to Jonathan Powell about nine months ago, who was Tony Blair's chief of staff. I became very, very, very angry talking to him because again, he was basically saying, firstly, you know, we needed to go into Iraq because who knows what would have happened if we hadn't gone in. And secondly, basically, his conclusion on all these places in Libya is just that we didn't do it right. Somehow, if he kind of planned more and done even more technocratic planning, the whole thing would have been fine, right? So that worldview really upsets me. And I, I'd find it very, very difficult to be in a party that saw the world in that way. The other side of this is your big society stuff. Well, I believe very, very strongly in local democracy, in extreme devolution, in taking power away from the center and giving it down to the most local level, because I believe local communities know more, care more, can do more than distant people. And it's something that's connects actually to what I've been doing since I've left politics. I've been working with a, an NGO called Give Directly that gives unconditional cash transfers to extreme poor, essentially bypassing all government structures and all normal capacity building and NGO structures and just says, here's cash, get on with it, make your own decisions. And the evidence is overwhelming that you have far more effect, pound for pound, dollar for dollar, just giving people unconditional cash than trying to define schemes for them. And I felt this in Cumbria. I mean, again and again, I was an MP in, in the Lake District, on the Lake District. And the nonsense and the waste brought by these, the Northwest Development Agency and the various quangos that had sprawled across Cumbria, incredible names, Cumbria Future, Cumbria Together, Cumbria Vision, Cumbria, I mean, all of them absorbing massive amounts of money and achieving absolutely nothing. And again and again, I felt if one had given a fraction of that money to a local village, they would have been able to fix so many of their problems themselves. And, and one of the problems with big societies, of course, there's this sort of weird argumentative technique where people say, well, big society is not going to fix brain surgery, is it? I mean, are you really saying that the local and sub-postmaster is going to be able to do brain surgery? And I'm thinking, this is ludicrous, right? I'm talking about, are they more likely to be able to get good, affordable community housing built? Are they more likely to be able to run super fast broadband into their community? Are they more likely to do a small scale renewables project? Absolutely. Are they more likely actually to be able to get a bit of economic growth going in the village if each small business gets a cash grant as opposed to somebody turning up with a clipboard trying to design some great scheme? Absolutely. As you're speaking, I, two thoughts come to mind. One is, so you mentioned postmasters, sub-postmasters, and you, I'm sure, like everyone has been struck by how completely captured never mind the public imagination, but the news agenda has been by the post office scandal, which seems like a pretty good illustration of certain forms of collective or centralized madness in relation to what actually happens on the ground. And there clearly is a public appetite for profound skepticism about certain kinds of centralized schemes. That was ostensibly an efficiency scheme that went wrong, and then a kind of madness took hold. And yet, the big society itself, the Cameron Osborne version of it, it didn't really do any of the things that you describe, um, or at least not much. Sadly, the senior people were not actually serious. They didn't pursue it with real conviction and sensitivity. I mean, I was very sad when I finally got David Cameron up to the constituency 
I mean, he kindly came up to Cumbria to see some of the schemes we're doing. And I took him to a, a village called Crosby Ravensworth that had built 24 affordable homes for low-income families bang in the center of their village. And they were good vernacular architecture. There was no nimbyism and it was really working. But I just didn't feel, and maybe this is unfair, he's a tired prime minister, I just didn't feel the interest or the enthusiasm from him. I, I didn't feel he was really connecting to these people. And, and I, I think this is part of the problem is that the generation of politicians of which he, Ed Balls, Ed Miliband, George Osborne, a kind of symbol, these kind of people who I guess started their working life in sort of 1989, 1990, were professional politicians for a very young age. They don't really have a great interest in administration. They don't have a great interest in working to see small opportunities with local communities. They operate on a very, very, yeah, well, I mean, I think what they learned from Blair, oddly, was a sort of a view of politics, which was very driven towards news agendas, opinion polls, focus groups, overarching narratives, slogans, but was really not very attentive to the potential in hyperlocal areas, and therefore they, they weren't very well suited to be launching a big society vision. It is very striking, as you describe it, that the the moment when you alienated them, never mind when they alienated you, that is Cameron and Osborne, was when you were asked to support them on House of Lords reform, and you refused. And George Osborne, I think, says to you, if you go through that lobby, you will never get a job in this government. And as you say, he was true to his word, you didn't. And your objection, as you describe it, was twofold. So you are a Tory in the sense that you believe in the constitution, right? You don't want to tinker with the constitution. And you thought this was a sort of tinkering scheme. And on the other hand, you didn't like the fact that it was basically you know, radical constitutional reform undertaken for the sake of a deal with the Liberal Democrats in coalition. So you say you didn't like the thing itself, and you also didn't like the way it was done. You didn't like the fact it was basically high political deal-making playing around with the constitution. Do you still feel that? I mean, do you still feel, we think of something like House of Lords reform, you would object on both fronts? Or is it really the second and not the first? I couldn't tell from the way you described it, which was the thing that was driving your principled stand. I think the second thing sort of disgusts me. I mean, I think that the sort of trading off the constitution to try to gerrymander electoral boundaries, basically, to help the conservatives win the next election. I mean, it's a particularly low kind of deal. And the sense that David Cameron didn't really believe in it. I mean, at least when he tried to sell it to us, he was like, oh, come on, is it going to be that bad anyway? And, you know, maybe we just do a third of it and we follow through. And it's only the House of Lords. It's only the House of Lords. Um, but the second thing I think is that, and, and this is the way in which I contradict myself. I mean, I claim to be a Tory who's a great believer in British tradition, but actually I'm very, very worried about our constitution, our uncodified constitution. I'm more comfortable really with a US style written constitution. And the thing that I'm most uncomfortable about is that we theoretically would have been able to abolish the second chamber of parliament on the basis of a kind of 50 plus one vote in the House of Commons on a rainy afternoon, same way you kind of get rid of tax on Cornish pasties. Whereas in every other country or almost every other democracy in the world, you'd need a special procedure to change the constitution, something really big, like, you know, House of Representatives abolishing the Senate. You really need a special procedure, right? And the same would be true in almost every country, either a supermajority or an election in between or, or a referendum. So I'd been concerned about some of the moves that Blair had made on the Supreme Court and the Lord Chancellor and devolution. I was very concerned about the ideas that Scotland could become independent 
on a potentially a low turnout, simple majority. And I was particularly horrified by this move, which it just seemed sort of lacking in seriousness. So I, I'm then in an odd position, which is that I end up then in my attempt to kind of defend the old constitution, changing the constitution, because of course, the whole point about the British constitution is its incredible flexibility, which is what makes me uncomfortable. And so how would you do it? Because as you say, one of the ways it's done in other places is by referendum. And there was an almost an unspoken thought occasionally in British politics, that the really big questions, for instance, Scottish independence would require a referendum. But the experience of those two referendums has probably put people on both sides of the divide off referendums. But then when you talk about the other options, people think it's more technocratic wonkery, you know, a constitutional convention or a citizens assembly, or whatever it is. But at the same time, you can't fight a general election on constitutional reform, first, because people aren't interested. And second, because general elections are not one principal questions there, who do you want to govern? So how, how do you do it? I agree with you, there needs to be constitutional reform in the sense we need to rethink how this thing's going to hold together for the next 50, 100 years. But how, how do you how do you get it off the ground? I've never known how to answer that question. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think you're right that it's not easy. I mean, obviously, I'm very sympathetic towards constitutional conventions. I, I'm very sympathetic towards citizens' assemblies. I mean, part of my whole view of the kind of, that's sort of one aspect of this kind of big society idea isn't just unconditional cash. It is citizens' assemblies. It's an idea of people meeting because I do think our systems are very broken. I'd actually like to explore the idea of a standing citizens' assembly acting almost as the third chamber of parliament, which would be able to debate the same legislation that parliament was debating and force a, a repeat vote if it disagreed. On how you would set about changing the House of Lords, I would like it taken out of the political sphere and put in a citizens' assembly or a constitutional convention so people can try to think hard, debate hard, and come up with some ideas. And that's not just you know Gordon Brown going off with a couple of mates in the back of an envelope. I'd like a really contested process with lots of different voices in the room, but not those voices being whipped members of political parties with attention deficit. Yeah, and contested must be the key. I think people have an assumption that these things are a fix before they start. And the only way you can counter that is showing and not telling, yeah. right? And David, I mean, there are basically two views on this. I mean, there's the perfectly understandable view that what you want is an elected second chamber. And my concern with that is gridlock, that these chambers will lock horns. I would like a much higher quality appointed chamber. So I'd like to have a appointments commission and basically create something that felt more like the best of the crossbench lords. You know, I, I, I really like the fact that at its best, the House of Lords has really thoughtful, smart people who are quite unlike elected politicians who have had different life experiences and, and are able to think in a different way. It's very interesting in your book that the beginning of the story that you tell, the story of your time in Parliament, uh, has a description that I've just given of a basically a 19th century distinction between being a Tory and being a Conservative, which is the dilemma you're caught on. And then much nearer the end, when we get to 2019 and the question of the leadership, you describe an event you went to where Michael Gove was making his pitch. I think it's to a room of hedge, hedges, hedge fund people, you know, money, money guys. I assume they were mainly guys. And again, I just want to read you the bit in which you say to Michael Gove, you don't sound like much of a Tory, Michael. And he says, I'm not a Tory. I'm a Whig. 
to a round of applause from the hedgies who clearly think of themselves as Whigs. I didn't know they all thought of themselves as Whigs. And then someone says to you, well, why, why do you think of yourself as a Tory? And you say, I believed in love of country, respect for tradition, prudence at home, restraint abroad. The table laughed. Was I then a defender of the Dukes and the Anglican Church, worst two of the BBC and of Europe, as though somehow the BBC had become part of the ancient constitution. So what does that one mean? I mean, I, you know, I'm a historian. I found it fascinating that you and Michael Gove were debating whether or not you were Whigs in front of a room of, of hedge fund guys. But what did that one mean to you at the time? What, did, what does Michael Gove mean when he says he's a Whig? Well, he'd actually just given a speech to that group. I don't know whether I retell it properly in the thing, but you know what he essentially said to the table is, British Army is a disgrace. We need to get rid of all these sort of old antiquated things like the Brigade of Guards. And, you know, we need to be more like the Israeli Army. And British agriculture is a disgrace. We need to get rid of all these sort of antiquated small farmers in the Lake District. And we need to be more like Israeli agriculture. I mean, he, he said twice, in fact, who's got better agriculture? Who's got a better army, Israel or Britain? And then he went on to talking about land reform and confiscating bigger states. And, and I, I literally sort of sitting there thinking, this is really weird, right? I mean, this guy's, you know, running to be leader of the Conservative Party. And he's, you know, of all the problems that we're facing, right? I mean, agriculture and dukes sitting on top of grouse moors is such an irrelevant part of the actual problems facing our country. I mean, it's, it's a weird kind of throwback to a kind of rhetoric of the, I don't know, it sounds like he's a Tanzanian politician from the 1960s. I mean, it's kind of, and I've always had this fear that there's a sort of, it's true with Dominic Cummings too, that there's a kind of, um, there's a sort of conservative version of being a kind of Trotskyite. I mean, these guys are, really want to smash the whole place up. And in fact, I think Gove famously had a picture of, I don't know, it was a Lenin or something behind his desk. And I think David Cameron said of either Cummings or Gove or both, you have to recognize they're Maoists. So, you know, we can take this all the way down that road, yeah. There's a lovely line in Yeats, which is really important to me, maybe too important to me, because maybe it doesn't really work out when I'm saying it to you, David. But he says, um, Burke, Goldsmith, Barclay of Cloyne, these kind of 18th century Irish Tories, all hated Whiggery, that leveling, rancorous, rational sort of mind that never looked out of the eye of a saint or out of a drunkard's eye. All's Whiggery now, and we old men are massed against the world. There's a Tory philosophy for you. <laughs> yeah, I love, I love, I love, I love the, I love the attack on the levelling, rancorous, rational sort of mind. But that's also part of my sort of anxiety about high modernism. I mean, I think that we are prisoners of a idea that somehow governments can be engineers, the human soul, and that natural science now predominates, and that there is a sort of, and that the texture of how things are. Uh, is to be swept away. It's like a sort of radical enlightenment vision. I was in the Royal Society yesterday, and of course, its its um, its slogan, you know, is, is "Take nothing on word." And then it and and basically, its whole founding charter is about saying, you know, we you know agree to reject all tradition, everything that we hear, just reimagine everything on first principles. That's completely not my worldview because in Afghanistan, again, to sort of return because it's very important in my kind of political formation. I saw people, you know, writing books, the president of Afghanistan wrote a book called Fixing Failed States, where he kind of had universal theory for how to fix all failed states around the world. And there am I thinking, this is a country that is quite particular and peculiar. And its social and anthropological structure is very strange. And the way in which men and women interact and the way in which Islam works and the way in which jihad works, and the way in which communism works and rural communities, it's about attention to what is rather than what you 
feel ought to be. I found myself thinking about your book uh, recently. I've been reading Gulliver's Travels because I'm doing a podcast about Gulliver's Travels. So there's Swift, like Burke, a Whig who becomes a Tory, becomes a real Tory. And yeah, has that great satire of the Royal Society in it. That's one of the, the great Swiftian satires of the ridiculous schemes, the fantastical, absurd schemes. You haven't written a Swiftian book in that it's not sort of scatological and rancorous in that way. But you seem to share that sense of the absurdity of much of what passes in politics as rationality, which is a small c conservative idea. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think Gulliver's Travels is such a good thing. I'm so pleased you're doing that. But my dim memory of it is that the implication is that these guys, yes, are highly abstract and are coming up with ludicrous, unworkable theoretical schemes. But there's also a sense that that connects to a certain form of corruption and careerism, hmm. and that this kind of bullshit is is part of sort of helping themselves float ever higher in whatever funny system they're in. Funny Whig system, he would say that they're in, because Whiggery means corruption for a Tory like Swift. I mean, that's the other side of it. Every scheme is corruptible. Yeah, and that's sort of what I feel, that the corruption is very deep in our politics, Labour and Conservative, not, not necessarily in the, in the normal sense of... Um, of people benefiting, although there's quite a lot of that too. There's sort of disturbing revolving doors and lobbying and so on. But the way in which people get promoted, the way in which they win elections, sort of the campaigning loyalty careerism reshapes their brain in a way that isn't fundamentally serious. I mean, I, I guess I, I guess I'm also a Tory because I'm a bit skeptical about progress. I mean, I, I think that Yes, obviously, in many ways, our world is immeasurably better than it was. But I just feel our public discourse has suffered. I mean, you know, if I read, I don't know, Haldane, then a minister from the early 20th century, right? the guy has a level of sort of seriousness, thoughtfulness, which I think is completely lacking most of the people I interact with in Parliament. And, and I, without sort of overly defending the 19th century system, at its best, it seemed to be able to produce people who had a right balance between thoughtfulness, erudition, time, opportunity to be open to challenge. Yeah. I want to ask you in a minute about how you think you can get those people back into politics. But just one more thing about that. Um, I'm slightly obsessed with your hedge fund evening with Michael Gove. So they laughed at you as a Tory, the hedgies. And you know the idea was you, as a Tory, therefore, you're defending these indefensible institutions like, yeah. I guess, the monarchy, yeah. I don't yeah. know, the Church of England, but also they say the BBC another you know, indefensible institution. So Tories do believe, small T or large T Tories, that we need institutions outside of central government to protect us from crazy schemes, crazy sort of Swiftian schemes. So which are the ones that work for you? And, and I partly want to ask you where universities fit in, not just because I work in one, but I think it's a really interesting question at the moment. Universities, which used to be pretty Tory institutions, they certainly aren't anymore. But which are the institutions that stand outside, if you leave aside the Church of England and the monarchy and yeah. maybe the army, but as, as a Tory, which are the ones? Is the BBC one of them? Are universities one of them? Yeah, the BBC is definitely one for me. I love the BBC and I, I would want to spend much more on the BBC and I think it's heartbreaking that we've cut the BBC World Service and the language services so much. All I would want from the BBC is that in exchange for more money, there was a little bit more focus on seriousness. I think that there is a sort of slight paradox of putting a lot of license fee money and then producing very commercial kind of reality TV shows. I think universities are absolutely vital. I mean, I'm very romantic about universities. I love universities. I think that 
small farms are for me really important. I think the texture of small family farms, what that means for the landscape, what that means for the independence of people in, in rural communities. I, I do like funny institutions like the National Trust, the Environment Agency, Natural England. I have sympathy for, although I often disagree with them, but a lot of the environmental charities, huge multi, you know, you know National Trust, whatever it is now, six million members. Yeah, I, I, I like the sort of warp and weft of British society. I, I don't favor radical consolidation of power and simplification. I like district councils, but I'd like them to be more confident, more powerful, with more control of their own resources, better paid. And that is, in a way, you've just laid out a big society vision. I mean, that is one way in which you can cash out what that phrase once was meant to mean, right? Yeah. Yeah, because I think that a lot of the problems that we face, both economic and political, can be resolved by more decentralization. So the economic problems, I think, are the way in which right-wing governments have used the power of, of London to pursue these sort of radical free market deregulation agendas, which have caused havoc around the country. And left-wing governments, again, have tried to use centralized power to develop industrial strategies, which are often entirely unsuitable for local areas. I think putting the power back down at the local level, you're much more likely to develop schemes which reflect the actual assets and character of your area. And, and I think, you know, with, there's evidence that I think that you can see that on a slightly larger scale, but you can see that with Andy Burnham in, in Manchester. You can see that with Andy Street in Birmingham, that the type of industrial strategies that work are ones that are generated at a much, much more local level. They're not really about the government saying, we're going to make a big bet on AI or we're going to be the nuclear leaders of the future. It's much more Manchester saying, well, are there certain kinds of vocational training course we could be running, which would really work with the kind of industries that we got here? And politically, I think the same is true. I mean, I think that we are so distanced now from Westminster and bringing power down is about creating active citizens. I think democracy is all about active citizens. The closer you can get to politics at the scale of a little Greek city state, the better. You do want people standing and being challenged and being jabbed in the chest in the supermarket. And, and you want a sense of accountability, What you don't want. I mean, we're talking in a week in which, as you say, the post office scandal, I mean, so depressed by all the various politicians who just don't want to apologize or take responsibility for what happened. It's incredible sort of weird kind of, yes, I am sorry that I was lied to stuff going on. I mean, why can we not get a more straightforward sense that shit happens, you're responsible, you're going to apologize, may not be entirely your fault, etc. Anyway, all of this stuff I think can be helped by getting power out of Westminster and Whitehall down closer to, to communities. One way of characterising what it means to be a Tory is that Tories used to be suspicious of party. So the, the Tories became a party, uh, but they would say that it was forced on them by the Whigs, as it were, you know, in, in order to be in, in opposition to what they thought of as the, the party group. And your book, a lot of your frustration is frustration with party politics. I mean, I think what you want to do doesn't fit the mould from the beginning to the end. You're being forced into a box, not just by the whips, but by a system that says you have to be this tribe or this tribe. And the, the vision that you've just laid out there is not being articulated by a party at the moment. I don't think it's going to be on offer in the forthcoming general election. It's probably one that many people agree with, or at least think they agree with, and then would like to hear more about it. So what is the choice here? Is it 
to find a way of articulating that vision through the party system? Or is the Tory response to push back against the idea that this has to be a party system? I mean, independents don't fare well in modern politics, uh, in modern British politics. The idea of being a small i independent, never mind some kind of big independent grouping. Where is the space for what you've just described in a party system? And I'm not asking you, are you going to form a new party or anything like that? I just mean almost philosophically, what is what is the space? It's a paradox, isn't it, that you've put your finger on? Because you're absolutely right that um, there are many elements in our culture which would like to see more independent candidates. And there are many elements in our culture which would also like to see more activity in the center ground and uh, sort of unhappy with kind of punch and judy aspects of politics. But on the other hand, you're also right that if you look at local councils, the trend over the last 60, 70 years is to have fewer and fewer independents and more and more party people, particularly over the last 20 years. The parties have set out deliberately to try to drive independents out and make every local council party political. And spaces for independents, you know, the space for a Macron existed in the London mayoral race because it was a transferable vote system, a bit like the French presidency, where if you didn't make 50 on the first round, you could go to a runoff and maybe pick up the other votes. That's been abolished now. We've now, Labour and Conservatives conspired to create first-past-the-post systems now in the for these mayor races. So it, it is very difficult to work out how one creates this space. And the, the problem with the parties isn't just that they whip and vote together. It's the way in which they select and form candidates, the sort of people they're looking for, the weird tests of loyalty they Im- impose on them. There's a, a lovely sort of quite detailed book by Isabel Hardman trying to look at the Conservative and Labour candidates and just how weird and humiliating their lives are, often for sort of five, 10 years before they can get a seat. The way in which they have to leave their jobs, take on these big mortgages, spend every night with elderly party activists, get assessed endlessly by the party on their sort of micro performance in their district. And it it creates a very odd type of person. It doesn't create people who are intellectually curious, who are going to be brave and doing what they think is the right thing. It creates extreme cynicism. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. It's also odd that we've had a, a few experiences recently in British politics where people have seen that never mind the, the people who end up in parliament, but the activists, as you just described, the members, but particularly the most active members of political parties, are not like most people. 
I don't mean by that that they're they're weirder or odder. They just don't share their views. And so you get Corbyn or you get Liz Truss. When democracy gets devolved to the level of the party members, you get a very, very odd snapshot of opinion because people who are active in political parties these days are very unusual. And yet that doesn't seem to have done anything to shake the hold of the parties. It doesn't even as yet seem to have done anything to shake the hold of the party members over the parties certainly on questions of leadership. You know, that idea that it's more democratic if the members vote. How can that be more democratic if they are atypical of the wider population? And yet it doesn't it hasn't shaken anything. It's just made people think, shit, this is a weird system. But that's about as far as it goes. It is very odd, isn't it? I mean we we were talking, I think, over email about Michael Ignatieff's book. And Michael's conclusion is quite different from mine. I I come out of this fundamentally thinking there's something really wrong here. It, it oughtn't to be like this. This just doesn't stack up. We deserve much better. Michael oddly comes out thinking, maybe because he's a more reflective, older person. I mean, he tends to come out thinking he was the one that got it wrong and that actually he's got a lot of respect for professional politicians and their resilience and their cunning and their sort of dedication I don't know what you think about that. I mean, do you, do you agree that, that that essentially Michael's book is that sort of oddly, it's a book about him failing, but then deciding to pay huge tribute to those that succeed? I mean, I was thinking about that and also thinking about his appearance in your book, which is interesting because he, he appears early on. He's almost high on politics when he makes his first appearance in your book because he's, le- he's leader of the Liberals in Canada at that time. He hasn't yet had what is about to come, which is a crushing, devastating election defeat. And he tells you that politics makes you know, brings you alive. It's sort of it's the ultimate test of a person. It kind of you know, draws on skills you didn't know you have. Later on, he appears in the book as a somewhat more chastened figure. But yeah, he does seem to have drawn the conclusion that people like him, and he implies people like you, who are a little bit outsiders, maybe haven't got what's needed to really work this system from the inside. And yet, I did find myself thinking you and he do not have the same story here because he was absolutely crushed in the election that he fought because he did more or less come from nowhere and he'd been working in the United States. He didn't do what you did, which was you had five years as a backbench MP. He just seemed to have been parachuted in and that's what they used to destroy him. And he became leader very quickly and it was catastrophic. You did work your way up the greasy pole. You actually did. I mean, it was quite quick at the end, but for a lot of the time, you were going up one step at a time. So you weren't vulnerable to what he was vulnerable to, which is basically you're a carpetbagger, right? That, I I think, would have been true in your case. But he seems to suggest that scholar, intellectual, traveller politicians like you and him, in the end, aren't going to have the necessary skill set. And I, like you, I find myself wondering whether he was being a little bit too defeatist. I think the question is, can one find opportunities to break through in the system? And and there are, of course, the Conservative Party has provided these sort of odd opportunities. I mean, the, the way in which they've had five leaders since 2010 has provided repeated opportunities for unusual people to come through. I mean, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm certain we haven't got the right people actually coming through. But it's interesting how the unpredictability of the system should produce another chance to roll the dice and and get someone better. The problem is that the basic pool of talent is very dispiriting and the culture is very dispiriting. So that, you know, if there were another, almost certainly, obviously, the Conservatives will lose this election, Kirsten will come in, Tories will have another 
leadership election. It's very difficult for me to think of anyone I really am excited by taking over the Conservative Party. And there is a risk that it'll go the other way in a sense that the Conservative Party, indeed British politics, is currently vulnerable to some of it being outflanked on the right, the party itself and and the political system, that the frustration with a Labour government, and I agree with you, there will be a Labour government within 12 months, and that government will generate a lot of frustration because it is going to be another Whiggish technocratic government. At which point, potentially also outflanked on the left, because I think at the moment, there's so much, obviously, hope invested in Keir Starmer. But once it becomes clear that he's trying to stick to the conservative tax and spend rules, there will be enormous disappointment about the continuing creaking public services, the pressure on public sector wages. So I think we're in an odd moment in Britain in which the fact that we have these slightly boring lawyer and boring banker as the prime minister and leader of the opposition gives us the idea that we've kind of past peak populism and we're the kind of exception to the European and American rule. My guess is that it's a temporary exception and that the underlying drivers you know, the massive discontent with the way our economy works, the way our public services work, demography, immigration, politics, social media, all of that stuff that reinforces populism is likely to drive the Conservative Party back to the right. And ultimately, the Labour Party will start splintering on the left. And can you think of what might be the event or the set of circumstances, given that level of frustration, can't really be channeled by this system, this two-party system with, with the other parties sniffing around the edges? doesn't seem to provide an outlet for the range of opinions there will be among the public over the next five years. And yet, Brexit didn't do it. I didn't. I never believed it would, and it didn't. Brexit, which was a huge break in the way we do politics, but it didn't change the way we do politics. I probably disagree with you on this. The thing that I thought would do it would have been Scottish independence. I thought a yes vote, regardless of the merits of the case and the fact it would break up the union that you believe in, but I thought a yes vote for Scottish independence would have been the kind of event that would have forced a rethink of how we do politics, because it would have left England and Wales and Northern Ireland in a state where you'd have to reimagine what it would be for that to constitute a country, and it probably would have broken up in other ways too. I can't really think of anything else that would have the effect, apart from a war or something like that, that we're properly involved in, that have the effect of getting people to think it's not just a question of changing the people in Downing Street. We actually have to rethink the way we do politics. I think Scottish independence would have had that effect. Yeah. I mean, I, I have to believe that we can get to something more like a New Zealand electoral system where we can have some more proportional system to let in other parties and allow the right of the Conservative Party to float off and the left Labour Party to float off and create more opportunities for varieties of opinion. But how you get that, how you lead that, how you settle that in people's minds, I'd have to understand the New Zealand story better because there was no great crisis there. I mean, or nothing like a war or Scottish independence, which triggered this very sensible reform from a Westminster system. I mean, it could be a small country story because people also point to Ireland. They point to the Irish yeah. abortion referendum and the role yeah. that citizens' yeah. assemblies play in that. I mean, why can't we do that? Yeah. Why can't we do what they do in Ireland? As you say in your book, one of the things that put you off the Labour Party was its tendency to think there's a Scandinavian model that we can adopt. We are, the United Kingdom is not New Zealand, it's not Ireland. Sure. Apart from anything else, it is a bigger, more complicated state. Um, I think small country-ness is something to do with the answer. Absolutely. And it's not France either, because France also appears to be able to create a certain number of republics pretty quickly. And it's not Germany, which is a much more federal yeah. system, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and it's not America. Yeah. <laughs> it's us. Yeah. It's us. Yeah. And there's actually rather, I mean, it's a rather good um, resolution foundations 
uh, report in economics, which has just come out, one of the strongest things about it is its insistence that we're not Germany <laughs> and that we have to become a better version of Britain, not a kind of more German version of Britain, because there's so much past dependency. I mean, it's like these endless sort of slightly sterile debates whether the French health system is better than ours. I mean, even if the French health system is better than ours, it's almost unimaginable how the hell you redesign a health system from the bottom up to introduce the French health system or how much pain that transition would, would take. I mean, I, I think we are, though, at a very dangerous moment because th this book is partly about the fact that I think politics, particularly British politics, can feel like an almost religious enthusiasm. I mean, one of the ways in which I was probably misled is I invested so much in the idea of parliament and government, partly because, you know, I'd been briefly in the army and I'd been in the foreign office and I'd come from a kind of government family. I'd, I'd sort of found in government a kind of meaning of life. And I sort of would read Aristotle and think, oh, man's a political animal and therefore there's some massive philosophical justification for why this is the very best thing that anybody should do in the world. And there's all these kind of 19th century peoples sort of suggesting becoming a member of parliament is absolutely the kind of peak of anything that any man should ever want to do, right? The Trollope vision of the politics. The Trollope vision of politics, yeah. Um, and I bought into a lot of that. And of course, then I th found myself in this thing, which was like a kind of Dunder Mifflin paper factory. I mean, a kind of horrible kind of dystopian kind of slough office, right? And I think for the public, there is also an odd romance still invested in it and a gap between that kind of romantic vision and what's happening, which is in Britain and all around the world, we are losing our interest and our faith in all the stuff we used to study in civic education classes. I, I don't think Americans really care much about the constitution and the separation of powers in the way that they probably did honestly in the 1950s. And I think the sense of the lack of performance, the kind of shoddiness and ineptitude, slowness of government, you know, brought out by post office scandals or in in Holland, you know, we now have a far right victory of the government's complete inability to deal with policing child benefits. So I don't know, I think I I am a bit gloomy at the moment. Last question. In the light of that, so you you will this year, I'm assuming you're still podcasting through the year, you're going to spend an awful lot of time talking about an election, which, as you've described it, isn't much of a choice. First of all, on the categories that we've been talking about, sort of Tory, Conservative, Whig, whatever, it's, you know, th these are two very similar kinds of political leaders leading parties that are different, but not radically different. You're going to be talking about it with someone, Alistair Campbell, who who really minds, right? You know, he really, it really matters to him that the Tories lose, the Conservatives, I should say, lose, and Labour win. And you'll be talking about it. How will you feel? I mean, I, I find it hard to know how any of us should feel about this forthcoming election, since most people sort of, on the one hand, feel the result is baked in, that the choice isn't a great one. But nonetheless, you know, it matters. On the, the account that you've just given, will you feel it really matters? Or will you feel that there's something a bit performative even about the way you're going to have to talk about it? I think I find it all very dispiriting. But the most optimistic story I can produce is that at least the new government has a brief moment where it wants to take ideas and where it might feel a bit more courage. I think I, the, the best hope is that a Starmer government comes in and briefly, at least, these new secretaries of state, new ministers, feel they've got a moment. And maybe they've got a civil service that sort of thinks, oh, things could be a bit different and start dusting off stuff. Because if you look at, you know, for example, AI, maybe just to conclude on that, to get what we need out of AI to really transform healthcare 
involves not just sort of tinkering around the edges, but a complete reimagining of the way in which AI could do not just things that the NHS is currently doing, but things the NHS isn't currently doing at all. And it could involve, you know, very mad radical things like dispensing with a lot of the things that GPs currently do and totally reimagining devices and the way that people interact. Now, my hope is, and this is maybe a completely absurd optimistic hope, that maybe a new Labour government coming in might just for a couple of months have the bandwidth and the energy to want to think radically, but we shall see. Rory Stewart's book about his life in politics is called Politics on the Edge, a memoir from within. It has been a bestseller for, I think, about six months, so many people might already have a copy. But if you don't, it really is the best, as well as the best-selling, recent political memoir. To find out more about this week's episode and future episodes, do follow us on Twitter at PPF Ideas. Next week, we're going to be having a conversation which does actually connect with this one, though it's about the 18th century. It's about Whigs and Tories, but it's also about some of the things that we were just discussing there, including religious enthusiasm in politics. I'm going to be talking to Richard Watmore and Leah Ippi about the Enlightenment and what happened to the Enlightenment at the end of the 18th century. I'm also going to be telling you soon about our plans on past, present, future, including the forthcoming series on the great political fictions. Do please join us for all of that. This has been Past, Present, Future, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.